Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. The word impossible is really anathema to me. There's nothing impossible. I wouldn't be doing what I did if, if I believed stuff was impossible. So if you have a dream that I think would serve the world, then go for it, uh, because the world will be there to support you to achieve that dream. For anyone that doubts their ability to change the world for the better at scale, this week's guest is proof that good intentions, a little creativity, underpinned by clear goals, can result in monumental impact at any age. Welcome, Stephen Hecht, co-founder of A Million Peacemakers. Million Peacemakers is a non-profit organisation that empowers people to transform conflict into what they call non-flict. Stephen's inspiration came from his multi-faith work and his own transformation in focusing on the commonality in people over differences. With over 225,000 people around the world trained in the first five years with a focus on youth, families and businesses, Stephen is changing the world one peacemaker training session at a time. He's led non-flict way workshops in countries ranging from Honduras to Nicaragua, USA, Thailand, Philippines, Israel, Jordan, Mexico and more. He was also a speaker at the Vatican in March 2019 for an international conference on religions and the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and was invited back three weeks later to speak about creating a culture of peace in the world. I hope you enjoy this episode of Empathy, Compassion and Conflict Resolution with Stephen Hecht. Stephen, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you in New York, all the way from sunny or snowy Montreal. Actually, via Berlin. Oh, via Berlin, right. Okay, that's... Rainy Berlin. Okay, what were you doing in Berlin? It was the 30th anniversary of the Fall of the Wall, so I did a um, YPO event there called the Fall of the Wall, and we had about 180 people there from around the world, 21 countries. I did a talk while there were a lot of speakers who were there during the wall, uh, during the negotiations for the wall, after and people who are involved with different walls that are going up right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> or that are already up. And, and then I was the last speaker at the end of a very long day on my journey and how non-flick could be applicable to prevent further walls from going up and how to deal with our own interior inner walls as well as external walls. It's really interesting. And then I did a four-hour workshop the next day for about 50 attendees and a grassroots group was created to actually take action using non-flict in their communities. And I think we've maybe talked about this before, that there were, I think at the time of the Berlin Wall, when it came down, there were 27 walls around the world, and now there's 70 that have been built. So you're absolutely right. There are more walls going up today than there ever have been before, and that must say something about the state of the world. But I'm sure we're going to come and talk about that. Well, we're going to get into talking about non-flict and exactly what you're doing with Million Peacemakers. But before we do, we always like to start by exploring your upbringing and your childhood. You were born in Canada? Born in Montreal, which is Canada. Well, I've actually got sort of Canadian-based um, relatives, the Scottish diaspora that travelled around the world. Well, they helped build um, a lot of Canada. Yeah, they did indeed. Mm-hmm. But not, not in Quebec. Actually, there, there is a Scottish neighbourhood in Quebec called Griffintown. So it was in Montreal. 
I didn't know that. Now okay. you know. Well, it's the, the Scottish and the French, we've got that old alliance, alive and, alive and kicking. It is. So talk to me about your, your upbringing, your parental support, the guidance, the direction that they gave and how it affected your, your journey. My parents got married at a young age, I'd say, which was quite common then, 22 and 20 or 19, my mother, at the time. And they had me about a year later. So they were young parents relative to what we consider typical today, which is probably 10 years later till people have kids on average. And they learned from their parents who learned from their parents. Their parents, my grandparents, were Eastern European, escaped pretty tough times, and quite tough, stoic, judgmental, performance-oriented. You had to succeed. You had to work really hard in order to survive. And that was pretty much my upbringing. Mm -hmm. So what about the impact they ha your parents had on your, your sense of self or your self-belief? Who, who was more influential, your mother or your father? In different ways. My mother was home a lot. My father worked a lot. Uh, so it, I was spent more time probably with my mother. And she was very much, as I mentioned, black and white. And, and sometimes if I didn't agree with her black... I would just keep quiet because I knew that it wasn't going to, I, I, it wasn't going to be positive if I fought with her, yeah. let's say. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I, I did have a, a, an older uncle who did play a mentor role in my life. His name was Jack. My daughter, Jacqueline, was named after him. And he was quite influential as a mentor. In what way? He had no kid of his own. And he kind of took me on as a project bought me the first computer well before there were computers. So we kind of engineered a, a computer. This was back in the 60s, wow. so early days. And I also, when I would start working at our family business where he was the president, he would uh, work me probably harder than anyone else. So I certainly started doing uh, the sweeping, cleaning out ashtrays. We had a retail chain. And, and I would probably have to, I certainly knew I had to work harder than anyone else because he and my father, you know, were watching out just to make sure that people wouldn't accuse them of favoritism. He also confided in me in, in different issues, regarding different issues around life and around business. And he was a workaholic and he ate very quickly. So I knew when I went out to lunch with him, I had to eat very quickly because we had to go back to work right after. <laughs> yeah. You're... So there was a family business yes. in r r retail? Or? Yeah, we had a formal wear chain, uh, tuxedo rentals and sales, uh -huh. and bridal shops as well, and manufacturing. So w before you got to the stage where your uncle brought you under his wing and was nurturing you <clears throat> and preparing you for the business, what was your childhood like? What was? Uh, do you have siblings? I have a younger brother and sister. My brother is came about two years after me and my sister two years after that. And we we all got along, but we fought, like many siblings do. And and I always found I was a little different than everyone else in the family. In what uh, way? Maybe more serious. So play, were you playful, exploratory, curious child? Good question. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed sports, and I was curious, and I'd say I continued to be curious, and that was an important thing. But again, I was quite different. Maybe my personality was quite different than everyone else in the family, mm -hmm. so I would say. Did you feel that you were being groomed for the family business or did you feel that you wanted to go out and explore the world and do something different? I felt I was groomed 
for the family business more from my uncle. And um, in the end, he died when I was 20. So he must have identified something in you. Well, we were kind of aligned. Probably my personality and his were more aligned. Uh And the degree of, I guess, seriousness and and work ethic, I think we're more aligned. Mm-hmm. My father worked very hard, don't take me, don't take me wrong, he, he worked very hard. Was there any uh, particularly defining moment or memory from your childhood that stands out? I would say when I was 15 was a defining moment or defining time for me. Before that, I would say I was in a very sheltered, closed home. I was, I left for four months to go for schooling to finish two months in Israel and then two months to tour as part of a group in grade nine. And that was the first time I was away from my family for an extended time. And that allowed me probably to gain a lot of self um, confidence Mm -hmm. to be away from the house and just to explore. So I would explore. I've met friends on a, on a small uh, community, chicken community. I made friends and we would just go walking on the paths in the uh, Jerusalem Hills. And I would then learn Hebrew before my Hebrew was very poor, even though I went to a Hebrew school, because I only identified with the teachers who I didn't like very much, but now it became a living language and, mm-hmm. I, and I learned the language and I taught them English and we had a great time. Was this, this was a kibbutz or just a it was called It's called a moshav, uh-huh. uh, which is a community similar to a kibbutz, but around one industry, in this case, chickens. All right. Oh, yeah. Never heard of that. And okay, so that that defining sort of that moment at 15, you came back from there. With yeah, a- I'll just share one moment there, which was interesting, which was also along mm-hmm. the lines of conflict. I made a friend in, in Jerusalem who invited me to his home for the weekend, for Shabbat. And on the way walking back to his home after going to synagogue, there was another group of kids. So I was with him and his friends, and there was another group of friends, and they started getting into a big argument with each other. And I said, what are you guys fighting about? He said, well, they don't think we're religious enough. They don't think we're real Jews. <laughs> and to me, I thought, well, they're all religious. They wore kippahs and they were observing Shabbat. And, and that's when I realized that it wasn't just the Israeli or Palestinian issue that was going on there. People were quite tribalistic based on, you know, in this case, are you semi-religious, very religious, uh, secular? And it's almost like you need a common enemy not to have... Mm-hmm. Civil War. Well, I suppose that yeah, happens across all all sects and all religions as well. Yeah, it so, does. Yeah. So, returning from Israel back to Canada, what was your transition then into a further education? So that's when I started doing well in school because I started doing it for myself, not and for my parents. What school? I was attending in high school, Herzliya High School, which was a uh, Jewish high school, uh-huh. private one. Then I went to. In Quebec, we go to CJEP, which is junior college, and I started taking business, inspired by a teacher. I really liked an economics teacher, Mrs. Gaydon, who was, who was great, uh, versus my science teachers, which uh, who I didn't really identify with very well. So maybe that's why I ended up in business. Uh, then I went to McGill. I did a Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing at McGill, and then I did an MBA at uh, what's called the Ivy School of Business, University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And was that the old part of the plan for maintaining and growing and scaling the family business? Or did you have other ambitions at this point? No, it was to go. My uncle died when I was second year at McGill. And that summer I went to work at the family business and we found an accountant had poorly managed the accounting, the books 
and and I realized that I didn't know enough about accounting with my marketing degree, and I realized I would have to go ideally do an MBA and learn more about finance and accounting, so at least I would know, or I'd know at least as much about that area mm-hmm. as my accountants would. You spotted the, the weak point in the family business around the accountant. You did your MBA, you, you became a more, rounded, uh, a more rounded businessman. What point through that journey in business, in building your family business even further, did the concept of conflict and, and the issue of addressing conflict in the way that you're doing now, when did it come to a point at which it became a, a central life focus? I had studied negotiation because we had a union that I had to negotiate with, and I was a pretty good negotiator. But what I found in practice was sometimes you would maybe win the battle and lose the war. So when our union went on strike for our manufacturing, we had to ship and have tuxedos for people's weddings, and I couldn't afford not to deliver because our union's on strike. I decided to close our factory in Montreal, and I looked elsewhere and ended up manufacturing in Korea. So we talk about the use of force or power. The union used power on me to try to get a better contract by going on strike. I used power with them to close them down and show them. But at the end of the day, I had to manufacture in Korea and manage Korean distant manufacturing at a distance and send someone there and watch quality control. And I'd say we, we both lost at the end of the day. So sometimes you win the battle and lose the war. They thought they won the first battle. I thought I won the second battle, but we lost the war. And that happened a lot. Yeah. And the environment as well. Certainly the environment as well. But change in nature of your supply chain. That too. Yeah. It's interesting. I just wonder how often that's, that's occurred in the, uh, uh, that's a micro example, but on a macro scale, if you then if you then sort of scale that across different organizations across different countries, you can see why we've ended up where we are. Well, price wars. I experienced price wars as well. My marketing manager during the time things were getting tough in the economy around eighty nine, he thought, Oh, let's do a price war. We're the biggest. But at the end of the day, it's such an easy thing to match. So what I found, if you don't kill, if you cannot kill your enemy or your competitor, they're just going to use force or power against you when you least expect it or, or, and and you all lose. And you see that certainly today. We can't win this win-lose attitude, which is a good part of our society, be it in sports, be it in everything. It doesn't work because, again, unless you are destroying your enemy totally, be it your competitor or people, they're going to use force on you. Okay, so let's talk about the meeting of serendipity and how you ended up um, forming Million Peacemakers and meeting your co-founder, Dr. Amir Kafir. So when I was 30, I joined a group called YPO, actually 31, and that's 30 years ago. I joined a group called Young President Organization, and the mission of that group is Better Leaders Through Lifelong Learning and Idea Exchange. That was the mission then. And for people that don't know about YPO, I mean, it's quite an interesting organization in terms of the, being a, an organization formed, I think you said, 60 years ago across over 130 countries and the accumulated sort of, uh, I think, the, the, the wealth or revenue that would come from businesses associated with it are on a scale of equal Not- to probably one of the largest, third largest economies in the world if you pull them together. Nine trillion dollars. Nine yes. trillion dollars. It's quite mm-hmm. frightening. And it's, it's not an organization many people have probably heard of. They don't advertise very much, mm-hmm. although they are looking now to 
create greater impact in the world as an organization or to empower their members to and to be a more known entity than they have in the past. Yeah, because I can imagine the collective influence of those people that are in those positions of power is quite striking. Yeah, the organization has now changed its mission from what I mentioned earlier to exceptional leaders making an impact around the world mm. along uh, the pillars of people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnership, which is the UN SDGs. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we're definitely going to come and talk about that. So, okay, so you, you became part of the YPO. So I became part of YPO uh, 30 years ago when I was the education chair for our Quebec chapter in 10 years ago, actually. And when you're over 50, it's called YPO Gold. And as you know, over 50. I wanted to do something that I could learn from. And we learn in our Bible, uh, love thy neighbor in the Old Testament, love thy neighbor as thyself from Leviticus 19 and in the New Testament, Mark 12, 30. I thought, well, how do you love your neighbor if you don't know them? If you don't know them, you don't like them. If you don't like them, you don't love them. So I said, let's get to know our neighbors. And we took our members in our Quebec chapter with spouses and young adults to a Catholic church, then a mosque, and then an Orthodox synagogue that were in a one-mile radius of each other. So first we went to the church, and most of our members are Catholic, so they had been to churches before, but then we went to the mosque. None of us are Muslim. None of us have been to a mosque before. And I brought the top imam in Canada there who led the afternoon services. And then we went with people from the mosque and their spouses and young adults together in the bus with us to the Orthodox synagogue, my synagogue, where my, where my rabbi took out the Torah, explained about Judaism. Then we had a moderator ask tough questions to the rabbi, priest, and imam. So he asked the rabbi about the expansionary policy of the settlements. He asked the priest how he felt about pedophilia in the church, lack of action by the pope. Then he asked the imam if he could explain why is it invariably Muslim people blowing themselves up, killing innocent women and children in the name of Islam. And tension in the room, as you can imagine, was quite high. Uh, and the imam's answer was, I could start by talking about our differences, and I might never get to our similarities. Or I could start by talking about what our three religions have in common with each other. And maybe, just maybe, the differences could take care of themselves. We pray to the same God, the three of us. We believe in the same holy land, Abraham was our forefather and yours, so we're related by blood. So when he started talking about those commonalities, the three of them started joking with each other after. It really brought back the, down the mm -hmm. tension, and that idea stuck. Then we had a kosher halal-friendly dinner, tables of eight people of each religion at each table, fathers to get to know commonalities of fathers, mothers and mothers, and the kids sat together to, to learn about each other as well. The night before, I had an email from the imam saying, we're going to be in the synagogue during our evening prayers. What do we do? I didn't know if it would be allowed. So I, I wrote the rabbi and he wrote back the next morning, we'll show them to the library. Things are going so well, he showed them to the main sanctuary. So he had 20 Muslims doing their evening prayers facing a Torah in an Orthodox synagogue. Wow. Probably the only time that's happened. To finish the night, we had people stand up around each table and hold hands while the rabbi, priest, and imam said a prayer for peace. I was holding Father John's hand and they were trembling. Looking around the room, there were tears in people's eyes. At that moment, we had love in the room. So we went from not knowing our neighbors to love in four hours. Uh, and that was roughly when? That was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, right. And then they asked me to chair the Canadian region for education. And I said, okay, let's take the learning of that event a step further to action. Conflict, as I mentioned, had been a big part of my life. By the way, I didn't mention I've been married 28 years, but with three wives. Mm. 
So I was married nine years, nine years, and I was happily married 10 years to my wife, Naomi. Wow, you hit the 10-year mark. Yeah, I did. Right. That was very big, very <laughs> There big. must have been a moment around the nine years and 340 days you were getting a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> the whole ninth year was quite nervous, actually. Uh, so last July 5th, we hit our 10-year mark, and now uh, I'm feeling much, uh, much more relaxed. But your wife is as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So then... I said, okay, let's take the learning of that event a step further to action, and let's do an event on the topic that I had a lot of experience with in a negative way, which was conflict, and I wanted to learn from. So I got buy-in from all 17 chapters in Canada to do an event on conflict resolution, mm-hmm. which would be in May 2012. So I figured, great, I'll hire an expert to lead it. So I bought a dozen books on conflict resolution. And I found them tough to get through. They're tip- typically by PhDs for PhDs and quite academic. And we need change-inducing take-home value that we could apply right away. So I was attending our annual convention. It was in Denver, Colorado. And I was introduced to the chair of our Peace Action Network that bring together members who come from conflict zones. And I told him about the idea for the event. And he said, wonderful, how can I help? I said, well, I need a facilitator. I need a leader for it. And right away he said, Dr. Amir Kafir. Uh-huh. He said, Amir had brought together Greeks and Turks, Turks, Armenians, Israelis and Arabs, Indian to Pakistanis. So I called up Amir and Amir agreed to, to lead it. Where was Amir living? Israel, Tel Aviv. Okay. He's ninth generation, generation Jerusalemite, actually. And, and I speak Hebrew, so we had that in common right away. And then I put together a team of academics and practitioners with a goal that any model we came up with had to be so simple, it fit on the back of a business card, and which is what became Nonflict. As well, the goal was that that model had to fit for any conflict, an internal conflict, a conflict we could have with uh, family or business or even geopolitical. And this was a goal you set with Amir? This was my own goal, uh, and Amir agreed. Mm-hmm. And, and Amir agreed as well, so we... So this was an antidote to the, the heavy academic PhD written books that you wanted to go from that to something as simple as a business card. Something very applicable that anyone could use yeah. without having to read, you know, a 950 page book or, you know, That's another academic. An book. ambitious goal to set, given the, the, the context of the, let's say, the conflict as a, in academia, to take something. Did you have belief that that would actually come to fruition absolutely yeah i believe totally that that it could yeah and and so i had no doubt and we set the goal and that was our ideal reality and and then we took action to achieve it so i put together a team of academics and practitioners with that goal and and that again became the three-step model that we talk that we call non-flict right now we printed that business card by the way about three days before the event in may 2012 Wow. And then so, we held it with 700 over two weeks. We had uh, the workshop with in six cities, uh, which were the hub cities, Montreal, then the next day Toronto, then the next day London, Ontario, followed by Winnipeg the week after and Calgary and Vancouver. So we would fly each night to the different uh, venue and do it. And 700 members were able to, and their spouses and young adult children were actually able to resolve the toughest conflicts in their lives right in that workshop. So maybe this is a good point at which you can break down the actual process. I mean, I know that having done, uh, you very kindly took me through the the training, the four-hour training, which is now under the banner of Million Peacemakers. So perhaps you could explain the, the, the structure, both in terms of the way 
that we currently as as individuals and as business people or as families and relatives deal with conflict and the three-step process that you've applied which is understanding yourself from the other understanding your shared reality and then i think the third one is is understanding uh through co-creation the ideal vision of your relationship pretty close yes <laughs> okay you sent me right then so let's talk right. about our current our current approaches um well why do i test myself see if i can r get this right so the the way that we normally deal with conflict is we use force and power one yeah two we compromise yep that's another one mm -hmm. number three we prevaricate and put off and delay okay flee that would be flee, flee or avoid flee, yes um and then the other one i think is just turning over in your belly and like a little dog and going yeah okay and be dominant giving in good for you hey you got them all right. <laughs> i got them right yeah <laughs> you know what works is you the brilliant way when you teach it you have these these little images and it's the images that stick in your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we do our workshop, we have an image and then we would ask how many people in the room use f fleeing as an, as an example of, of dealing with conflict. And the biggest workshop I did was 700 people at a time. And these were CEOs, YPO members, at a, a global conference we did in Vancouver, British Columbia. And about a third of the CEOs said that they use fleeing or avoiding conflict as their go-to way of dealing with wow, conflict. that's crazy. These are the people who have the power to hire and fire, and they avoid conflict. Culture starts at the top in an organization or in a country. And, and if they're fleeing from conflict, you could probably be sure that people in the organization are walking on eggshells around that topic. And by the way, I should say that conflict is merely two or more different perspectives coming into contact with each other. So by definition, conflict is neither positive or negative, but how we deal with it is either constructive or destructive. And the purpose of our workshop is to give people tools to deal with conflict constructively because we need conflict, positive conflict, for innovation and growth. Well, These I was literally about to say that innovation, great innovation, is sparked through conflicting points of view and perspectives. Exactly. So we need it as individuals and organizations. The key is that we do it in a constructive, positive way, and that's what conflict was for. Thinking about it in terms of... Um, disruption, innovation, and change, that people are often fearful of change and uncertainty and ambiguity. <clears throat> Do you think that's a contributing factor as to why conflict errs into the negative rather than in the positive where people do innovate, they do sort of spark off each other? So some of us grow up in a culture where failure or lack of success is judged very negatively. <laughs> and if we're never trying anything, then certainly, you know, we're never going to grow and we're punished every time we do try something, yeah. then we're not going to innovate. So many of us associate trying things with or innovation in a, in a negative way. So change is, is fearful. So if you grew up with that environment, that you're going to be punished when you try something, yes. So we have negative connotations around, around that mm -hmm. versus just seeing it as an opportunity. Oh, I just learned what doesn't work. Let me try something else now. So could you perhaps talk us through those three steps then of how sure. you've developed the, the non-flick model. So non-flick combines coaching, positive psychology, imago marriage therapy, and change management in a step-by-step -step process. So there's nothing new there. We didn't invent uh, anything new. There's a lot of research on all those. And all we did is put it in a logical step-by-step -step process. So step one is first understand ourselves and the other. 
Einstein said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about it and five minutes on the solution. So very often we try, we think we know the problem right away and we come up with the answer before we really understand it. So we have to take the time in step one to understand ourselves and our partner, who's the person we're in conflict with. And we would ask or, or share, well, what is the conflict and how does it make me feel? And feelings are important because we're not robots. People have feelings and we have to examine them. So facts and feelings around the conflict. So if you and I are having a conflict over, give me a topic. Let's say over, where we go on vacation? Let's say I'm your wife. Hi, dear. Hi. <laughs> Hi, darling. <laughs> we're, about, we're, about to go on, we're about to go on vacation uh, next week. So, so if we're having... I'm your second wife. <laughs> your third wife. Third wife. <laughs> no, no, because uh, uh, no, she's... Oh, uh, wife that's number all two. Going, right. That's, uh, all, that's, going, that's all going well. And, and by the way, it's interesting. So <laughs> those two are more different perspective, glass half full or half empty. My yeah. second wife always saw it as half empty, and my current wife is half full like I am, so we have less conflict over that. <laughs> yeah, so vacation. <laughs> so I want to go on vacation... I would share my facts and feelings, and you would mirror back the essence of what you heard and ask, to understand you well? And is there anything else? But vacation's an easier one. Can we have a more serious conflict? Yeah, okay. A tougher one. A tougher one would be, let's say I'm a business partner and I want, I want to expand into three markets at the same time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share you a real-life story, okay. okay? That was just shared with me that was applicable to that. So yeah. it was two brothers, and there was a father. The father founded the business the restaurant and hospitality business. And they had a chain of restaurants and bars across Canada. And they were fighting over it, one brother, and, and he shared with me that he took out his, the non-flick card and it saved his family and saved, in their case, the business ultimately. So the person was living in a resort town in British Columbia with his wife and four young kids. His brother was older and living in, a, in Ontario and he really wanted to grow the business. And the father came from the from the background that you had to work hard every day of the week and just grow, grow, grow. The gentleman who who shared this with me, he was he had a young family. He was very happy living in this resort town and being the king of that town. And he was having conflict with his brother over how to grow the business. Mm -hmm. So step one is, what are my facts and feelings around the conflict? The other, and I'll share it with you, and you're going to mirror back the essence through active listening and then mirroring what you heard and asked to understand you well, and is there anything else? Mm -hmm. And typically there's something else. The next question is, what's important to me? Well, it was important to this person to, to be home with his wife and kids, to put them to bed at night. And he didn't need to have $10 million versus a few million dollars, right? Or a hundred million or whatever it was. It wasn't important. It was important to him to be with his kids. And the other person mirrored it back, his brother mirrored it back to understand you well, is there anything else? Yeah, I don't want to be like dad. I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. Dad's never happy, right? It's never enough. He's always thinking he needs more and more and more and more, right? So, well, and his other brother shared his facts and feelings. Well, I do want to grow this business and, and I want to keep growing and I want to expand. And I want to travel. I like traveling. And what is important to me is to be the biggest in Canada. Okay, that's his brother. So they took the time to understand themselves and what was important to them. That's step one where you understand yourself and the other. And what you find is we often want the same thing. We all want to feel respected. Mm -hmm. We want to feel safe. We want to feel love. And we want to have hope for ourselves, our children, and grandchildren. So when you take the time to discuss this with people you might have really serious identity-based conflicts with, you find there's commonality. And they wanted the same thing. They wanted the same thing. They both- but just a slightly different ways of doing it. Right, mm -hmm. end of the day. So then the next question 
or step two is to understand our shared reality, which is where we'll discuss, well, what's our real underlying conflict here versus the symptoms of the conflict? Because if we don't deal with the underlying conflict, it's going to keep coming back again and again and mm -hmm. again. Yeah. So their underlying conflict is they just wanted different things, right? The underlying conflict, and they weren't communicating about it either. They were just being judged harshly by the other for wanting slightly different things, having slightly different values. And then the next question is, what's working well for us? Often when we're in conflict, we're just thinking about the negative about the other person. What can we appreciate about the other person or about the conflict? Well, they, they do have successful business. They both have families. Uh, they're talking to each other. They love each other. What's working well for us? The question after that they discuss together is, what's our worst case scenario if we cannot resolve this conflict and how would it feel? That's from change management. If you don't have a real appreciated crisis. They both, neither of them would be in a situation of achieving what they want. Right. Yeah. And they fall apart as a family because they resent each other and very much and their kids wouldn't talk to each other and we'd fight with dad. So social psychologists say about half the people are more motivated by the worst case and about half by the best case. And what you focus on gets done. So now we're going to focus on step three, which is to visualize or which is to co-create. So the question now is, well, what's our ideal reality? Visualize our ideal reality and how would that feel? Well, our ideal reality is for me, I'm the king of Whistler and I get to put my kids at bed at night and your ideal reality, his brother's ideal reality is I keep growing this business and I'm the king of the rest of Canada. And then the next question is, well, what are the obstacles to achieve our ideal reality? In this case, the obstacle was the division of the business and the perception by dad that one of us, that I might be a failure if I, if I don't grow globally and work 24-7 the way he does and mm -hmm. did. What could we do to overcome the obstacles that we could control or influence? Because if it's out of our control, let's not bother with them. So the, what we can control is the structure of the organization and talking to dad and then action plan, who's going to do what when. So they decided, okay, let's have a meeting with dad, discuss it, and they ended up dividing up their business and they're both happy. They're both doing what they want. And the father's and, satisfied and as the well. The father is satisfied as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, the family is together and the cousins now get along well together and they do vacations together, which they were avoiding before. I mean, it strikes me as well that so much of this is based on creating an environment for good communication and in fostering empathy for each other. And obviously those are sort of characteristics that we don't really teach people, children and young people as they go through education. It's something that's never really part of our formal education. It's something that's now becoming increasingly important in the world that we're living in. Maybe this is a, a good point for you to then explain the bigger vision you have underlying Nonflict, which is a million peacemakers, and your aim for that, your, your vision to create more of a culture of peace and your mission of empowering people to transform conflict um, into Nonflict. So after the YPO event, my goal was to try it with a tougher crowd, and I went to a Palestinian refugee camp just to see how it would work with what we call an identity-based conflict. It doesn't get much tougher than that. Especially for a Canadian Jew. Yeah. So I went to the other side of the wall. I met with these activist women and through a translator, because only one spoke English and they're 15, and the founder, 84-year-old, very tough lady, her first question to me was, you're from Canada. Your prime minister did not accept us as a state in the UN. What do the Palestinians do against Canadians? I had to think hard about that one, and my answer was, that's true, our prime minister did that, but I'm not a politician, I'm a business person that travels around the world, and all that I and the people I meet know about you is what we hear about in the media. Would you be willing to share your true stories that I could then share when I travel? So she said, okay. We went around the table, and I took them through the questions of non-flict. 
And at the end of the four hours, including a nice lunch, the founder came and she hugged my wife and looked at me in the eye and said, thank you for being a friend to the Palestinians. We like what we learned. We're going to use it with our husbands. But more importantly, we are prepared to meet 15 Jewish Israeli women. And if you could get Obama, Netanyahu, and a bus in a room, teach them the same thing, we mothers won't let them out till there's a deal. And at that point, I realized that card was a gift to the world that I needed to share. They were willing to sacrifice being accused of normalization, collaboration with the enemy, for the sake of freedom. And there was no way they were going to do that four hours earlier when I was seen as a uh, hostile Canadian. Mm -hmm. So at that moment, I realized I cannot do it part-time. I left my career in real estate development to co-found Million Peacemakers. As you mentioned, with a vision of a million people co-creating a culture of peace in the world. And I registered billion the same day as million. Uh, so we'll have a party and change our name when we hit there. And, and I've just learned, actually, we've hit there quite quite num a new, number of times over uh, in terms of impact. So the and the, our strategic positioning as an organization is for those who desire peace, Million Peacemakers enables global transformation mm -hmm. by reframing conflict into non-flict. So our target market is anyone who desires peace, starting with family, youth, and business, and our Business is really global transformation. Our tool is non-flipped. Okay. Um, where has serendipity played its part in the formation of non-flipped and the Million Peacemakers? Meeting Dick Simon, the founder of the Peace Action Network, who introduced me to Amir, is one early stage. How I, how I found most of my uh, board members is all serendipity. One person I, I, I meet randomly at a conference who loves it, Stephen Abaraki, for example, the latest board member who, who I met at a conference in Portugal that I spoke at. He spoke on artificial intelligence. I spoke on peacemaking. And I happened to randomly choose his, con his breakout session and then waited for him to, uh, to be available. And when I mentioned what I do and why PO came up in the conference, in the discussion, he said, why PO, I just was your keynote speaker at your global conference in South Africa. Wow. Now, I had to leave that global conference to attend an event at the Vatican, which was another serendipitous story. But that tied the credibility of what we were doing together. And we spent six hours the next day, and he ended up coming and joining us. And he created AI for Good, mm -hmm. which is now taken over by the ITU, which is part of the UN. And where he introduced me to someone from Amazon who loved it and right away started writing an Alexa skill for for non-flict. So that's under creation right now. That's brilliant. And we, I did an event on innovation for YPO, and one of the attendees said, wow, I love what you're doing. How can I help? And he ended up contributing ideas and his engineer, chief engineer, who is now going to write the Google Google skill to take the Amazon for, to, for, for Google Home. So we'll have several hundred million people who will be able to use this, so this skill. This billion vision isn't uh, it's going to become a reality pretty soon. Well, that's what we're working on. So I did see you in a video talking about your relationship and how you've opened up interesting conversations with the Vatican and the Pope. And I think from listening to that interview, there was something quite serendipitous in how that emerged. Quite. So we had a, as we do each year, a strategic planning meeting with, with our team in July, a year and a half ago. And in looking at how to scale, one of the young people, a newlywed in our group said, you know, I had to meet my priest 
with my fiance before we got married, it would have been great if he was able to give us the tools, the non-flick tools, because I have a lot of conflict with him. And I thought that was a good idea. I had to be in London October the 16th last year, and I saw that London to Rome is a two-hour flight. So, and that was a Tuesday. I said, okay, let me meet the Pope on Monday because it fits my schedule. And I put it into my calendar to meet the Pope. <laughs> so as I mentioned, visualize your ideal reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, what are the obstacles to achieve my ideal reality is, well, I don't know the Pope. I'm a Jewish guy in Montreal. So what could I do to overcome the obstacles that I could control is ask people if they know the Pope because he didn't reply to my email. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I asked my board member, Laura, who's an Argentinian Catholic, the Pope, who's an Argentinian Catholic. I One said, step closer at that point. Yeah, I said, yeah. hey, Laura, do you know the Pope? She said, no. I said, oh, come on, Laura. So I wasn't having much luck, but I, I'm an optimist. I had not yet booked my ticket to London. It was now August, and I attended a cocktail party by my law firm, who did the trademark for non-flip, and I saw a gentleman there with a long brown robe and a cross. I said, hmm. So I introduced myself, and he ended up being Thomas Dowd, the Bishop of Montreal. I shared the idea with him to, to train peace. And he said, well, that's a great idea. I said, wonderful. Do you know if the Pope's available on October the 15th? I have an opening. (laughs) And he said, I'm really sorry. The Pope is going to be busy all of October with the bishop's conference, which I'm going to be attending. I happen to know the cardinal in charge of families, Cardinal Farrell, and the cardinal in charge of peace, Cardinal Turkson. Maybe they'd be interested. So I signed a book, a non-flick book for each of the cardinals and for the bishop, of course. and, And then I booked my ticket to London. But because I didn't have the appointment yet, I kept asking people random people. And my barber knows a lot of people and he's Italian. I said, hey, Giovanni, you know the Pope? Come on. I did. And he said, Steve, come on. I'm Italian. (laughs) Just because I'm Italian. Besides, he's Argentinian. I said, well, you know a lot of people, Giovanni. He said, you know, it's really funny you ask me this because the person whose hair I cut right before yours showed me a picture of his son meeting the Pope. Maybe he could help. He said, okay. So he introduced me to the father who introduced me to his son, who introduced me to a gentleman who runs his Rome office, who sometimes works with the Vatican. So I spoke to Robert in Rome, and I told him the idea, and he said, Steve, your timing is impeccable. The Vatican just asked me to help them with an event called Religions and the SDGs, how religious leaders can make a difference on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And there was 400 seats. Maybe they would let you sit in the audience. He said, great, would I get to meet the Pope? He said, no, only the speakers meet the Pope. So what does it take to be a speaker? He says, you have to be a world religious leader or part of the UN, and you're neither. (laughs) He said, well, let me try. So I wrote an email to to Robert that included an homily, uh, a sermon by by Father John, the priest who I did that workshop with I mentioned earlier on the teachings of Christ as related to non-flict. And I also talked about interfaith work I do because it was going to be an interfaith uh, event, people, religious leaders from around the world. And I work with Palestinians and Israelis and Jordanians and Syrians using non-flict. And I sent the email to Robert to share with the organizer. Two weeks later, Robert called and said, Steve, it's a miracle. They took you to be a speaker and you have no idea who they turned down. So I said, great. So it, I found out that the cardinal in charge of this event is Cardinal Turkson, who had my book from the bishop. Yeah. So between the serendipity of talking to my barber and meeting the bishop at a cocktail party, it it happened that I was invited to speak at this event and shared how religious leaders could use non-flict to be used for creating change in any of the SDGs because there's conflict, as you mentioned earlier, whenever Mm -hmm. there's change. So whether it's alleviating poverty or climate action uh, or peace and justice, which is number 16, non-flict could be used. That's wonderful. 
So I and spoke, I was the, on the last panel. So, so happened the person before me, introduced before me, passed away. So the moderator of that session said, I'm really sorry, the person, the, the next speaker really wanted to be here. He submitted a speech two months earlier, but he passed away this week. And in his place, Father, I think Pedro was going to read his speech. Mm-hmm. And then that, right before me, there was a moment of silence. So I had to kind of react to that. And everyone else sits down and read, reads their speech. And I just stood up and I felt I couldn't just sit down and read a canned speech like everyone else did. And I spoke for 10 minutes about, about what we do and how it could be applicable. And then they asked me to come back three weeks later to do the keynote and work with the Catholic working group on peace and nonviolence strategy for the Pope. That's amazing. So I As was a Canadian Jew. Canadian working. Jew. I was the only Jew with bishops and cardinals and nuns and priests. Wonderful. Well, I, I think we'll obviously share in the show notes links to, for people to learn more about Million Peacemakers, to sign up to become one of the peacemakers, and to learn more about what you're doing with Nonflict. But in the interests of time, we'd better jump into our quickfire questions. And there's so many more things I'd love to ask you. So we, we may have to do a follow-up in Montreal when the weather gets better. What principles do you stand by? Actually, we our organization, Million Peacemakers, had in our last meeting a discussion on what are our guiding principles. And we came up with a list, and I might not remember all of them, but number one was embrace conflict mm-hmm. rather than avoid conflict. Yes. So we have to walk the talk. Uh-huh. Another one was respect the individual, respect the group. We have meetings at a certain time. We all attend and we're all on time. Continuous learning. So continuously improve our tools as well. Enable freedom. There's another one. Freedom of expression, freedom. We've, we found that half the people that join us are either motivated by freedom to get mm-hmm. out from under the burden of conflict or see this as a gift to the world. So enabling freedom is really important as a guiding principle. And do the right thing would be another one. Whatever that right thing is, just do the right thing, which has a lot to do with empathy. Yeah, they're solid. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right thing in the end? Probably the toughest one was leaving a secure career in real estate development to start a nonprofit. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) But luckily I had great support from my my wife and family to, to do that. But it was tough. It was out of my comfort zone. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I travel a lot and meet different people. And every time I travel and meet different people, uh, they bring great ideas. Is there one global world problem worth solving that you would identify? Maybe conflict. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. That ticks that box. If you could return to one night or day in history, where, when, and who would it be with? Mandela was a great peacemaker and, and I think it would be really would have been really really interesting to be with him the day he was released from jail yeah I think and the that, lessons that, that he learned and how he felt right then yeah that'd that would be amazing been, that would have been a great place to be by his side impossible question what would your advice be to someone who's just about to graduate uh, go to study has a dream grand ambition but it's been told forget it that's impossible the word impossible is really an, an anathema to me I don't know if that's the right word, mm-hmm. but there's nothing impossible. I wouldn't be doing what I did if, if I believe stuff was impossible. So if you have a dream that I think would serve the world, then go for it mm-hmm. uh, because the world will be there to support you to achieve that dream. That's nice. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Me. 
Yeah, I continuously question myself. That's good. What book, besides your wonderful non-flick book, would you like us to offer the three listeners that submit the best comments in the comment section? Robin Sharma has been an inspiration to me, and I and I quote him a little bit. Anything from his latest one, The 5 a.m. Club, would probably be a good one to read. Okay. What's your perspective on failure? Because we talked about that earlier. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And and clearly, I, I don't believe in the word failure. Yeah. As much as I was brought up with that word. Mm-hmm. How do you keep up with technology? I read a lot, and, and I embrace technology, like like the Alexa devices or, or AI. And, and I play with it, and I really enjoy it, and I have for a while. Who are your greatest influences or influencers? My wife has a lot of influence. She's a, an amazing, positive person. So if ever I'm feeling a little self-doubt, I, I would talk to her. And, and certainly, as I mentioned, Mandela and Martin Luther King and people that when they could have really come out in a negative, destructive way, they looked at the wisdom of, of where they've come from and saw the power of forgiveness and, and the power of having a vision. Mm-hmm. Who should we interview next? Well, I just mentioned the power of forgiveness. There's a gentleman from Rwanda who has a story. He lives in London now and I'm probably gonna bring him to the Vatican. His family was killed by his best friend during the massacre, and it drove him, when he found out, almost uh, into a Great Depression and for 19 years, and he overcame that by forgiving, and he forgave his friend at a, tri- at a trial. No one could believe he did, and now he sings about that and talks about that. You might, I'll give you his name and contact. Okay, that would be great. So, just wrap up. Thank you, Stephen, for your time, for the books. We look forward to immersing ourselves in those and sharing them with other people as well to build them peacemakers. And I just acknowledge you for your vision for creating what is an inspiring, incredible and powerful agent of change in the world that needs change. And certainly in, in recent sort of situation where we're seeing the polarization of communities, politics, and the issue of identity politics where people need more empathy and understanding of each other and acknowledge you for your imagination and courage for doing this as you say taking that hard decision to walk away from a comfortable path well traveled to a path less traveled in the world of ngos and trying to change the world through the power of your imagination and passion so uh, thank you very much and keep up the work and we're glad to be part of million peacemakers thank you mark i'm very proud to have you as a peacemaker as well thank you okay bye-bye just go to itunes spotify stitcher google podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate and if you like the show please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us if you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.